0: Hi, this is Paul Dennett in Sydney, Australia. I'm here with Patrick Avidal. Hello, Paul. Hello, listeners. And welcome, everyone, to episode 15 of Bat and Ball with Pat and Paul. Well, it's a sombre Pat and Paul here in the beautiful Radio Hub studios in Alexandria in Sydney. Australia have been eliminated from the World T20... We're going to give you our thoughts on the, the match against India, the campaign itself, and everything about the, the competition. And we're also going to cross to Mumbai, to Chandresh Narayanan, and we're going to talk to him about his thoughts from an Indian perspective. Let's get on with the show. So, Patrick, when we last spoke, we talked about two must-win games, or effectively must-win games for Australia, against Pakistan and against India, Australia played magnificently, I thought, against Pakistan and, and won. And I thought they played pretty well against India too. Um, and, you know, just wasn't to be. The match itself, Australia batted first. And for the first five or six overs, it was an absolute delight uh, with Kawaja and Aaron Finch batting amazingly. Finch with power hitting and Kawaja with just oozing with class. And I remember. It, um, the predictor said Australia's score was predicted to be about 223, and I said a, sent a message of optimism to you, Patrick, and you said, Paul, let's not jinx it. And from that moment on, um, everything changed. Oh, I certainly did jinx it. I, the game was
1: started at 1am on uh, Monday morning Australian time, and so I, was, I fell asleep on the couch reading Road to Ruin, the book about Tony Abbott and uh, Peter Credlin. And uh, then I woke up at about 1.30, and I turned it on the first ball I saw was Usman Khawaja being caught behind. So I... Uh, I didn't really see the, the, the start, but I certainly saw the remainder of Australia's innings. And it was one of those innings where, as every partnership built and the batsmen got in, I kept thinking, right, they're going to tee off now and we are going to get to 190. And then immediately a wicket would fall. But I did retain some optimism about how, how well the team had actually sort of come together and sort of learnt from some past mistakes, especially that was manifest in the game against Pakistan when they really did turn it on towards the end. And they seem to finally uh, be coping with the conditions. and But the, the constant loss of wickets was, was harming them. And if it weren't for Peter Neville hitting 10 off the last two balls, they would have only got 150.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it was um, in an, uh, the Australian side of a month ago probably would have got bowled out for about 90. And so I think 160 was slightly disappointing. If one of those partnerships had really kicked on, it could have been more. But I think the pitch was very difficult after the new ball wore off. And I think it was a mature innings. And didn't help. Steve Smith was given out caught behind when he was miles away from hitting it. Either well, that's I think that that once again highlighted the the craziness of the situation where they um, forensically checked whether or not it was a no ball, but weren't able to check whether or not he'd hit it. Now, a lot of Indians would say, "Well, he did hit it because the 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 Snicko version that's over there did show a a faint little um, little marker, but without proper proper Snicko, proper DR, proper um, hotspot, you know, who knows?" Um, So. He, he didn't look like he was in that great a form anyway. And I think that the maturity of the Australian innings was borne out by the inning, Indian innings up until the point where Coley just um, turned the game on its head. They started uh, quite well, but much more slowly than Australia. And then when the wickets started to fall, if I was an Indian fan, I'd be thinking, we're going to have just as much difficulty as Australia did here, but without that brilliant start. And then... the Yuvraj Singh part of the match... I found quite
1: fascinating because I thought that uh, while ever he was at the crease, Australia was looking more and more likely to win because he was frustrating Virat by not being able to run twos.
0: Yeah, if you didn't say the match, um, you, twisted his ankle and got to the point where he probably should have retired hurt. There's no runners allowed these days, and he was doing that, as you say, Patrick, but uh, he did hit that crucial six, and he was scoring still at more than a runner ball. It could have been worse. What I think it, it did, did. It did end up getting twenty one off eighteen. Yeah, and it's it, it sort of slowed Australia's momentum down. Twice the physio came out, once for him and once for for Donny. And I think right at that point, Australia were on top. the, the momentum fizzled out a little bit. And then I think with a f- four or five overs to go, I thought Australia was still going to win. Then Coley just batted like Bradman. I think it's it the best T twenty innings I've ever seen in my life.
1: It, it's hard to argue with that. They needed forty nine off eighteen balls, and they did it with five balls to spare. There were a couple of extras in there, if you're in case you're wondering how they did 49 off 11 balls. It was simply breathtaking. I, I was describing it to my mother the next day, saying that watching the game, just as I started to believe more and more that we were going to win this game, that we, we had scored enough runs on what turned out to be a difficult pitch, just when I truly believed that we were actually on top, that Coley's domination of that Nathan Coulton-Isle Oval was simply breathtaking. Uh, to go, I think it was four six four four. And then he took a single to retain strike for the next over.
0: Yeah, and this was Coulton Nile, who had bowled very well in the. You know, I sent out a tweet saying I was worried that Coulton Nile's first over would get hit for 36. Um, his first over got hit for two, and, and he could have had a wicket. So he he was bowling well. I think the Australians were bowling quite well. They just ran up against a a force of nature. Now, um, in the, the wash up of the match, a lot of criticism was sent Steve Smith's way for only bowling Adam Zampa for two overs. The leg spinner who'd looked good throughout the tournament. His two overs only went for 11. Um, what do you think? I think this was really, really bad captaincy. I, I think that
1: this has been a slow bowler's tournament. And T20 cricket has turned into a slow bowling uh, version of the game, as we've seen in the Big Bash. Adam Zampa, I think is one of the better exponents of it. And I thought he'd bowled well all tournament. Uh, he hadn't taken a wicket, but he'd only gone for five and a half in a game at a time when India needed 12 and over. And I, I thought it was very strange to bring back on the seam bowlers when the ball wasn 't swinging, and it was just adding a bit of pace for, for the
0: Indian batsman to
1: work it straight
0: to the boundary look i, I don 't disagree, and I think that Smith himself realizes in, in hindsight that 's what he 'd do i, I can 't criticize him too much because I think at the time um, the wickets had all been taken by the quicks, and Faulkner had taken five wickets in the match against Pakistan taking the, the pace off the ball almost every ball, he's almost effectively a spinner. And he just ran into... Um, the, I think Coley would have smashed Zamper as well, to be honest. The, the other thing that... The, the other issue I think was playing in, in
1: Smith's mind was that Maxwell had just been taken for, for I think, 12 off and over. Yeah. And that was the last over of spin we saw. And I think Steve Smith was just worried that whoever he put up as a spin bowler towards Coley or Yuvraj was just going to be hammered straight back over their head. Yeah.
0: And, and they quite possibly would have been. Um, so, look, I think uh, Australia were very impressive against Pakistan and they played a pretty good game against the host nations who were the tournament favourites prior to the start in their home conditions. They got it to the last over and it took an innings that, as I said, the best innings I've ever seen in T20 cricket to beat them. You can't win them all as far as I'm concerned.
1: But... Yeah, uh, just, just quickly. Yes? Uh, just in the Australia-Pakistan game, did you see Steve Smith's shot when he took guard maybe half a metre outside off stump. So, you know, not only were all three stumps exposed to the bowler, but, you know, a good foot between um, Steve Smith's back foot and the, and the off stump was there. And instead of the Pakistani bowler just aiming at leg stump where Steve Smith could not possibly have gotten back to, to play a shot, he bowled it outside Steve Smith, where Steve Smith was taking strike and he whipped it through
0: mid-wicket for four. I think he almost whipped it through square leg for four. It was a full toss that would have been a wide that wouldn't have even hit the pitch. Whipped through um, square leg for four. Someone, f- some frustrated Pakistani on Twitter mocked up the Hawkeye and sort of said, uh, you know, they do the thing, um, path of the ball, path of the ball where it would have gone without, um, without movement. He did this one, the straight line angling off at 45 degrees, path of the ball, and then one hitting leg stump, path of the ball if the bowler wasn't a complete idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Darren Lehman used to sometimes take strike outside leg stump
1: because he wanted the bowler to be bowling on middle so he could hit it through the offside. I've never seen a, a, a batsman take strike so far outside off stump before.
0: No, it was quite, it was quite amazing. Um, now, with my, my overall thoughts on the Australian performance, I think that the, the biggest concern I have still is the, is the preparation, that in my naive, um, idealistic world, Australia should have been in India for a month preparing. That wasn't going to happen, as I've been told many times. But to have only one warm-up game in India, given that so often when Australia goes overseas to foreign conditions, it takes them a few matches to get into it, I think we played one warm-up game where we were very unimpressive, beaten by the West Indies. We were unimpressive against New Zealand in losing, and we weren't particularly impressive in beating Bangladesh. We turned the corner. We played wonderfully against Pakistan and India. And I think had we managed to get through India, we'd be very hard to beat in the semi and the final. Imagine if we played two warm-up games um, in addition to the one, and then um, you know the game, the standard of play that we put up against Pakistan maybe we would have seen that in the first game against New Zealand. Agar opening the bowling, getting smashed uh, for three sixes, maybe we would have seen that in a warm-up game and then he would have had a chance to either come back later in the warm-up game or he could have been condemned to never play again, but at least not to be risked in the match situation. I think that,
1: you know... We seem to take a lot of players on this, on this trip to India that, for no reason. They just took up a seat on the plane. And, and there were better players that we left in Australia who I think could have done a job in those two games that we lost. Absolutely. And, and we were lacking them. I think that Nathan Lyon could have done a really good job against New Zealand, and I think that someone like Travis Head could have offered a lot more in the game against India than we saw
0: from... Well, you'd say Steve Smith is probably the weakest link in the batting. Maybe you could have picked him in place of Coulton Isle. Yeah. Um, and I wanted Travis Head to be in the side...
1: And he has been picked for the one-day triangular series against West Indies... Well, completely meaningless series against West
0: Indies and, and uh, South Africa in June. Yeah. And I think that we can look back... And after every tournament, you, you could look back and say, well, some of the selections are wrong. That's fine. You, you, know, you can't live your life through hindsight. But again, as we highlighted last week, given that the Australian chairman of selectors, Rod Marsh, seemingly has no knowledge of Indian conditions beyond what he's been told through hearsay, hasn't bothered turning up to any of the IPL tournaments and didn't even go over for the tournament itself... Surely it's time to say it shouldn't have to be a former Australian cricketer that is the one that gets to be um, the chairman or indeed any form of selectors. Let's pick someone with a bit of um, nous and a bit of astuteness. Like St- Stephen Fleming is a name that comes to mind. Let's make him a selector. He's got a bit of, he's got a bit of um, cleverness, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I, I was always a huge admirer of Stephen Fleming. And New Zealanders have always used uh, sort of acumen, tactics and strategy to overcome the, you know, the limitations that they're playing squad might have, just by the sheer lack of people that play cricket in New Zealand. Even someone like Daniel Vittori, I think, would be a better uh, strategist and
0: uh, team builder. Well, that's, I think, what we can conclude part one on by saying, we think that in future, in order to be an Australian selector, you have to be a New Zealand citizen. (laughs)
1: Now in part two of Bat and Ball with Pat and Paul, we're going to talk to Chandres Nayarayanan. He is an ex-cricket writer for the Times of India and India Express, and he's formerly worked at the ICC, and he's joining us now on the line from Mumbai in India. Chandres, thanks very much for joining us. Are you able to tell us some of your thoughts so far on the World T20? I think the tournament's been very interesting. It's been a challenge for the batsmen, the pitches have been a challenge,
2: except the one in Mumbai which has been a featherweight. I think overall it's been a complete challenge for the batsmen and that's made it very interesting for me because the ballers have come into play and uh, we've seen some very intriguing contests and uh, some very intriguing
1: changes in the tournament so far. So overall it's been a very challenging and interesting concept for me. What have been your thoughts so far about the Indian team's performance? I think it's been patchy, Uh,
2: it could have been better, I think uh, the team came on high into the tournament, but they were brought to ground by a very efficient New Zealand team in the first match, since then I think India has not really hit top form, and uh, it's been a mixed batch for India so far, they may have won three of the remaining uh, three matches, but uh, they have not really hit top form, and uh, except Virat Kohli, none of the other batsmen have struck form as well. So that's a bit of a worry for India going into the semi-finals. But uh, overall, India will be happy that they have lost just two matches of the last 12 to 14 2020 internationals that they played this year.
1: What's been the mood of the, the Indian people? Uh, uh, is Is the country excited about the tournament and how India is going? Absolutely, uh, everything came to a standstill, especially during the India-Bangladesh match, as you
2: would imagine, uh, everything came to a standstill. The pubs were, were blocked, the, the balls were blocked, large screens everywhere, people talking about India-Bangladesh match, and then raving about Virat Kohli in the, in the match against Australia. So overall it's been like a complete party atmosphere in India and people have just lapped up this tournament like never before and uh, the fact that India has used to twenty twenty cricket over the last eight years the IPL has helped matters and people uh, so have really caught on with the tournament and really
1: enjoyed some of the performances, especially those uh, from the Afghanistan side. Do you, who do you think have been the best players so far? <laughs> I think uh, Birat
2: Kohli is really impressed with the fact uh, Joe has been very good as well, and Martin Ruppel's been good. Uh, but I think the New Zealand spinners have, have been the ones who are really interesting. me. Uh, I think they've been the surprise package for everybody, and uh, they've really done well, especially Ish Uh for a lex spinner to come in against a fight like India and to do well. That was a big, big call, and uh, I think Mitchell Santer as well has done well. So the two of them, I think, have been the picks for me in this tournament because we wouldn't have expected two overseas players to do well uh, against India, and they have been the real big picks for me in this tournament.
0: Hey Chandrish it's, it's Paul here. Just a, a quick question on the, the rivalry. Um, obviously, India-Pakistan is the big one because of the cultural reasons. How close is India and Australia um, to that? Is it a long way um, in second place, or is it is it catching up?
2: I think uh, India-Australia is the new India-Pakistan, according to me, because in the last 15 years, since the era of Kandilkar, Dravid, Lakshman, Pumle, uh, India put a huge fall on doing well against Australia, and that sort of worked well for India, because you have seen some very uh, very high-pressure contests between India and Australia, and uh, you've seen test matches being evenly contested, and uh, that's become the new India-Pakistan. Pakistan is sort of bit downwards since the 2003 World Cup, since the likes of Waka and Rasim and Shweb and everybody started going downhill and going out of the team. Uh, so overall, I think it's been more of a contest and a battle against Australia, and there's always been a needle between India and Australia, more than an India-Pakistan contest. It's been uh, built up always, but it's never really matched up to the height. but then India-Australia is always matched up to the height. So I think the India-Australia contest is much bigger rivalry right now than the India-Pakistan.
0: Well, it's interesting to hear. It's um, it's it's good for the ego as an Australian. Um, from from your point of view, uh, do you think that most Indians view it as a a friendly rivalry between India and Australia, or is there is there a bit of nastiness to it?
2: I think uh, over the years, uh, Indian fans have come to accept Australia gradually. At times, as the complete side, uh, since the 87 World Cup when Australia won in India, India always looked at uh, Australia with awe because. You know, when I was growing up as well, and all of us Indians, when we looked at cricket from Australia, night cricket, and colored clothing, and white balls, and so on and so forth, there was a sense of awe, oh. And we always wanted to do well against Australia. And that sort of stuck on, and with such champion players over the years, there's always this urge to do well against Australia. and that's a Respect for the Australian cricketers, and uh, and they're well received in India as well. Especially the likes of Brett Lee and Adam Gilchrist and Ricky Ponting. So over the years, and Steve Boyd as well. So over the years, that sort of respect has grown, and more and more people are, are looking at Australia as the team to beat in every format.
0: And and just just changing tack on that, um, in, in terms of Test cricket in India, we kind of hear that um, it is it's dying rapidly, and that the IPL is is all that anyone's concerned about. Is that accurate? Is is Test Cricket on the way out in India?
2: Uh, I would say in the major centres, the Test Cricket is still alive. But What's happened in India is that there's been a big digital boom, like it's been in Australia and everywhere else in the world. More and more people are following Test Cricket on the digital platforms rather than actually going to the ground because uh, depending on the source it's very difficult for anybody to take time out from work and actually go and sit there for five days. You know, the Pendleton last test match was a packed house in Bombay. Absolute packed house. Most test matches in major centres like Bangalore, Madras, Delhi are usually well attended. So uh, the plan this year when Australia tours next year is to take the test matches into the smaller cities because the smaller cities are very hungry for cricket. The bigger cities get an annual dosage of IPL and other forms of cricket. So now the plan is to take cricket into the smaller centres. So I'm I'm pretty certain that the the, the interest in Test cricket won't die anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I understand that. It does. It does frustrate me though when Australia go over there. That I always compare it to 2001, that we had those wonderful matches in the big centres in 2001 with big crowds, and now it seems, as you said, that they're taking it to the smaller centres, and it just seems to you know, the rivalry is so good that it deserves to be played in, in you know, in, in Mumbai, in, in Kolkata and in Chennai rather than in some of the smaller places. What, what do you think about that?
2: Uh, that's a good point to make. But uh, the, the thing is that uh, the, for the bigger centres, uh, the, the, the hunger, like I said, isn't always there uh, because they get high doses of uh, IPL and other forms of cricket. Yeah. So the, the plan is to take these matches to the smaller centres because the smaller centres have got very good facilities. Now some of the smaller centres are doing very well. You have Naqsa for example, it's a smaller centre compulsively and then you have Court and all the other smaller cities have got better than facilities and also uh, there is more hunger and more urge to see these legends in action. So, Virat Kohli was a little Next year, we'll be like one of the top contests. Uh, to was in the sessions, so that's the plan as of now. I get, I, I get your point about playing it in the big cities because of the rivalry and the passion that's built. But I think that the time has come now for India to think differently about test matches because the bigger cities uh, usually get their own doses of cricket, and it's time to take it to the smaller
0: centres. Yeah, fair enough. That that does make sense. Um, look, Chandras, thanks very much for, for for spending the time to talk to us and. Um, for you, I hope that India go on and, and win the tournament. Um, for us, I think that we might be, um, be cheering for our trans-Tasman neighbours and hope that New Zealand finally get their hands on some silverware. Chandrish, who is India going to play in the final?
2: I, I don't think it will be India in the final. I have a feeling that it might be West Indies versus England. I know I might be called a traitor in India, <laughs> but I have a very strong feeling that it's going to be West Indies versus West Indies England because I think the pitch in Banking stadium is ideally suited for West Indies. Small boundaries, flat pitch. And uh, they just need one one mad man to get going and uh, things might change completely for India. So, like I said, things are not looking good for India because they've been very patchy in this tournament. They may have half spent off their way into the semi-finals, but the semi-final is going to be very, very tough. And I don't think they might be able to put it across.
1: That's very big of you, Chandresh. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. No problem at all.
0: In our final segment this week, we've decided to introduce a little bit of a new format, and we're calling it the final over. We tend to go on a bit, so we're going to have six balls, and we're going to try to do them quite quickly. Six quick topics to discuss. Patrick, hit me. First ball, Paul. The last three balls of Bangladesh versus India.
1: Amateurish or just too much pressure?
0: Amateurish. For those of you who didn't see it, it was one of the most painful things as an Australian fan to watch. Uh, we needed India to be beaten by Bangladesh, really, because we kind of knew that we were going to struggle against India. Bangladesh had got it down. They needed w- two runs off three balls or one run to send it to um, super over, and it went wicket, wicket, wicket. Uh, two crazy attempts to hit a six when singles were there on the offing, but the last ball, they scampered through for a bye, got run out by 10 centimetres, and when you looked at the replay, the non-striker backed up as though it was a normal ball. If it had been Steve Waugh, I guarantee you he would have been given himself four or five metres and would have been hitting full pace just as the bowler let the ball go. And then he didn't dive. And you saw um, in the in the Australia-India game, Coley diving so far, he went horizontal. David Warren at one point dived to stop a ball in the field and almost broke his back. He slid for five metres. Easily, easily should have made that ground. Australia should still be going. India should have been out of the tournament. Oh, what might have been. Patrick, did you see the Smith all run four against Pakistan? And was it one of the most enjoyable things you've seen in a long time.
1: Well, it, quite remarkably, this is only the second time that there's been a four-all run in a T20 game in India. And uh, although the commentators did continuously remind us about the size of the Mahali pitch, that it was uncharacteristically large, wide through the square leg area. Yeah, it wasn't the MCG. <laughs> it was still not the <laughs> MCG. That's right. And look, Pakistan fielding, it, it, it's a topic of conversation that comes up quite a lot. And even the Pakistani journalists are sick of it. Here is how uh, Osman Samweden described it. Australia ran a four on Friday. They ran it in Mahali, which, okay, had a biggish square boundary, but still, it was one for a World T20 in India. It was only the second all-run four in a T20 in- international in India ever. I would say Mohammed Sami chased it down, but that would be entirely the wrong verb. If you leave anything out on the field, it is bound to come back at some
0: point. I watched it thinking... Ooh, there could be three in this, but maybe they should just like, stick with two, and they ran four.
1: Yeah, and uh, Paul, South Africa, out again before the semis in a major international tournament. That's 13 international tournaments, World Cups or World T20s, that they've failed to make the final. Are they the biggest chokers in world sport?
0: Yeah, look, I I don't like that term, because I think that if we keep on calling it that, them that, eventually when they do win something and it might be like the queensland um sheffield shield side that they'll win and win and win and win um but yes they are the biggest the <laughs> well sport like obviously they didn't
1: play in the, the 70s and 80s world cup until they were readmitted it for the 1992 world cup since that time they have only won one knockout match and that was in the world cup last year against sri lanka in the quarter final before they then blew it again against new zealand in the semi final they something about that 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 cricket team that cannot win important matches
0: and furthermore just to highlight it they they leave the group with the the best net run rate in their whole group but but didn't manage to qualify for the semis
1: yeah well they were very entertaining to watch
0: Patrick we've been so wound up in the Australian performance we haven't given the the women's tournament um too much attention but um who's your prediction to to win it from here
1: well hopefully Australia can get the job done they're playing England this evening so the game might already be over by the time you're listening to this and then in the other semi-final, New Zealand is playing the West Indies. It's been a fantastic tournament for New Zealand. They're undefeated in both men's and women's. Australia is coming into a lot of form. I think we'll beat England and then it'll uh, be a trans-Tasman final. Uh, I think it's been a really good idea to play this tournament concurrently with the male tournament. Often when you have a perceived you know, Tier 1 tournament and a similar but perceived inferior Tier 2 tournament, they they run the second one directly after, and by that stage, everyone sort of lost interest in it. I think by running it concurrently, it's really built up the excitement for both, and I've enjoyed watching uh, the women's matches at, at 8.30 in Australia, so prime time as well.
0: Yeah, the only disappointment is that there's not been the crowds that you could have, you know, in a nation of 1.3 billion cricket fanatics, you'd like to think that the IPC well, Some of the men's games aren't sold out, Paul. Well, that's the thing. If the ICC and the BCCI had got you know, really put their muscle behind it. They, they surely could have I'm glad it. you didn't say mines. then. <laughs> there wouldn't have been much there.
1: Paul, we saw the retirement from international cricket of Shane Watson. He didn't put his retirement up to the third umpire. He just, took, he just accepted it. Uh, what are your thoughts on his career as an as a Australian Test One Day
0: and T20 player? Everyone immediately with Shane Watson thinks of unfulfilled potential, that he had the body to be one of the greatest cricketers of all time. Yet, when you look at his record you know, I would like to be as unfulfilled as him. He finished up with um, a test batting average of 35, um, which is when you compare him to say, let's compare him to Andrew Flintoff, who's regarded as one of England's greatest all-rounders and one of the greatest all-rounders the world's ever seen. So batting average for Watto, average 35, and test bowling average of 33.7. So we go to Flintoff, test batting average of 31.8, so inferior to Shane Watson, and a test bowling average of 32.8, so slightly better, and he did take a lot more wickets. But just on figures alone there, you'd say that Shane Watson compares very favourably with uh, a legend of the game. And then, and this is unfair, because I think that there's no way that Steve Waugh was an inferior one-day player to Shane Watson. But on stats, um, Watson's got him covered easily. Shane Watson has um, an average of 41 in one-day cricket with a strike rate of 90. Compare that to Steve Waugh, average of 33 with a strike rate of 76. so um, Steve
1: Ward definitely played in a different era absolutely. of the game, though, which pushes down on certainly his strike rate puts a lot of downward pressure on that. It's interesting that the Flintoff comparison, because Freddie is seen as a winner in, in cricket. He's seen as a guy who came on and took wickets and, or hit runs to win matches, whereas Watson is seen as the, per, as the opposite of that. He's seen as the guy who didn't do that.
0: Yeah, but despite all that, he, he was uh, involved in the Australian 2015 World Cup winning squad, and I haven't checked this, but my memory says he was involved in the 2007 World Cup winning squad as well. That could be wrong.
1: Jeez, this is something you've got to tell me before we go on air. You've got to ask me this question before we go on air.
0: Let's definitively say he was. And if it's wrong, we'll, um we'll just cop that.
1: The, look, I really like Shane Watson. I, I thought that he was an entertaining player. I, I think that he, he played cricket in the right spirit. He seemed to be popular with his teammates. Uh, I think he probably did fulfill his potential. I think that that was just who he was. He was a, Batsman who played across his pads, and when he missed, he was out LBW. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, finally, um, Patrick, give me your predictions for the the semi-finals and the final.
1: I think that New Zealand will will make light work of their semi-final. I think that they will play England. I think
0: yes, they're playing England.
1: They're playing England. I think they'll win that, and I think that they'll play India in the final, and I think India will beat them. I think that uh, India will be able to drag that match down to India's level and then beat them with
0: experience. <laughs> um, I agree with you that India are going to win, but I've um, I've got a different um, opponent for them in the final. So I think that England are going to spring an upset and they're going to beat New Zealand in the semi. And I think that um, India will beat the West Indies and then India will go on to win the final. Shane Watson was in the 2007 World Cup squad. I've just checked it. Um, whether he played in the final... I. My memory says he did. Um, I'm sure he did in that darkened. Um, I remember situation. staying up to watch
1: that final, and, and I, how how it was safe to be throwing a cricket ball around in pitch black West
0: Indies. If you don't mention at this point, I think that final's still going. Then <laughs> you've missed the um the modern cricket cliche that's that's required. <laughs> That's it for this week's show and I leave you with one thought that I am going to cheer New Zealand on to win this, this tournament. I think the Australia-New Zealand rivalry should be one that wherever possible we cheer for the other one and I hope that New Zealand reciprocate um, in future Rugby World Cups um, as well. Patrick, um, where can we catch up with you during the week? You
1: can check me on Twitter at patrickavenal, and I blog ironically at CompletePatrick.com
0: and I tweet at The underscore Summer underscore Game. See you next time.